2: Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way, presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I am your host Reza Aslan, and I am the other host, Rain Wilson. You know, Rain, I got I got to say there has been something on my mind uh lately. I, I I need your two cents. Please. Yeah, tell me. Talk to me, babe. I'm curious, what do we owe each other?
0: Uh, are you talking about Venmo? I thought I sent you that money for dinner from last week.
2: What no, What are you talking no, no, about? No, 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 no. I mean, yes, yes. I am talking about the money you owe me, but but I'm talking about like deeper than that. Like what do we owe each other? You know what I'm saying? Oh, no, I get
0: it. I get it. You're going deeper. You're getting, you're getting, I see what you're getting at. You're you're still upset that I spilled that grape juice on your new rug. And uh, I apologize for that already. We Googled it. Baking soda is going to get it out. I've also okay. sworn off drinking grape juice. What is a man in his mid-50s doing <laughs>
2: drinking grape <laughs> juice anyway? What is a man in his 50s? First of all, it wasn't a new rug. It was a Persian rug. It was a an heirloom. It was passed down generations. So clearly I'm still upset up that. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about like morally speaking, morally speaking, what do we owe each other? It's a morale- The morality of rug stains. No. like. <laughs> Okay, look, let me put it as simple as possible. Okay, let's imagine that we're having dinner, okay? We're, and, and I start choking on, on the food. It's at your house. Yeah. And the only way you could save my life was by rushing over me, but in doing so, the grape juice in your hand will spill mm-hmm. not on my priceless Persian rug, but on your rug. Would you save my life if it meant ruining your rug? And it's a really, really, really nice rug. It's a really nice rug. I would
0: save your life because I'm rich and I can just buy another rug. I would just buy a <laughs> rug made out of
2: solid gold. <sighs> All right. Okay. I, I forgot about that part. Uh, okay. But what if I told you that instead of dropping a rack on a new rug, you could instead donate the rug money to a charity and save a child? Well, that would that would be a nice thing
0: to do. Yeah, definitely. You're saying I shouldn't buy any more rugs? Okay, you're, you're not. You're, you're quite quite getting closer. Following.
2: You're getting closer. Okay. What, all I'm, right. what I'm trying to say is that every day, all of us, you know, we make these wasteful choices. We buy like a plastic water bottle when we mm-hmm. have tap water at home, which is just as fine. You know, we splurge on things that we don't need. So if you really think about it, those things really start to add up. Yeah, got it. So you're saying that a human life is
0: worth More than material
2: things? Bingo, my friend. We actually have somebody here who can help us navigate this incredibly complex topic. The one, the only, Peter Singer. Peter is here to talk to us about utilitarianism about effective altruism about the idea that you know we should maximize in all of our actions the well-being of others peter singer that the, the uh, drowning child analogy guy yes he did not drown a child but yes the the drowning child analogy guy Folks, we've got some fun facts of
0: Peter Singer. Peter Singer believes in utilitarianism. Our choices should be guided by an effort to maximize happiness. He's got an organization, pretty amazing, with a great website, The Life You Can Save, uh, which also recommends a selection of charities deemed by charity evaluators, such as GiveWell, to be the most effective when it comes to helping those in extreme poverty. He's also an animal rights advocate, uh, became a vegetarian in his mid-20s, and uh, as he after he learned about the brutality of factory farms, and we're going to get to his famous drowning child analogy, one of the great analogies of the modern world. Very excited to speak to him. But before
2: we welcome him on the show, let's talk about this giveaway, Reza. Special deal for our listeners, folks. And this isn't even a thing that you need like a hashtag metaphysical milkshake to, but Because he's Peter Singer and because this is how he rolls, the first 20 people who rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, all you got to do is send a screenshot of that to metaphysical at castmedia.com, metaphysical at K-A-S-T-M-E-D-I-A, castmedia.com. The first 20 people will get a free copy of The Life You Can Save, the book that we want to begin talking to our guest Peter Singer about also folks metaphysical listeners can also download the audiobook for
0: free what everyone there is a link in the show notes download the audiobook for free uh it's fantastic the entire book has been read by a chimpanzee it's it's wonderful he's very big into animal rights and he wants to see animals more involved in uh, <laughs> podcasting
2: uh, welcome to the show, Doctor Peter Singer.
1: I'm very happy to be with you.
2: You know, this formative book, "The Life You Can Save," uh, originally came out, I guess, in 2009, and uh, this is the 10th anniversary edition. I feel like every everybody I know has read this book at one point <laughs> or another, and I'm I'm so glad for the reissue. It's it's so. I mean, obviously, you've been at the forefront of. Animal rights, uh, you know, moral questions of effective altruism, you know, for decades. But this book, I think, was you know, formative in. Uh, putting a lot of these ideas and theories into the public space. It's become so much a part of like the way that we talk about ideas of altruism and and giving. Um, and of course, very famously, there is an analogy that, this, that launches this book, an analogy that I'm sure you have said, I don't know, a couple of million times at this point. Uh, but for those few people in our listening uh, audience who may not be familiar with the analogy of the drowning child, would you mind just for the one millionth and oneth time uh, presenting that analogy and then sort of give us an idea as to what we're supposed to understand about this analogy?
1: Sure. So I'll ask you to imagine that you're walking across a park one day and you know the park well. It has a pond in it. You know that the pond is quite shallow because in summer, you see kids sometimes playing in it, and a teenager can just waist deep., uh, but it's not summer now, so you don't expect to see anybody in the pond. But as you look at it, you notice that there is something in the pond thrashing around. And when you look more closely, it's a small child, just a toddler who can't stand. So your first reaction is, well, this toddler seems to be drowning. you know, who's looking after the toddler? Where are the parents or a babysitter? But you look around, you don't see, anyone at all. So then you think, um, maybe I better rush into the pond, jump into the pond and save the child. no danger to me because I know it's a shallow pond uh, and I could easily do that. But then you have a less noble thought, which is that you've put on some of your most expensive favorite clothes and shoes because you're going somewhere important and they're probably going to get ruined if you jump into this muddy pond. So you ask yourself... Uh, it's not my child, and nobody asked me to look after this child. Do I really, you know, do I really have to go and save the child, or should I just forget that I ever saw the child and go on my way? Now, I hope that you listeners out there thinking about that will think to yourself, oh no, you couldn't just ignore the child because you don't want to ruin your nice clothes. Uh, it would be a, a monstrous thing to do. You certainly should jump into the pond and I would jump into the pond if I were in that situation and save the child. Good. So I hope you do all react that way. But but the point of the analogy is to say there are children who are dying who we can help, who we can perhaps save their lives for not much more than you would have to pay to replace those expensive clothes you had on. And yet most of us are not doing it. Most of us are not sending money to the Against Malaria Foundation to provide bed nets so that children won't die of malaria in malaria-prone regions. Uh, or They're not providing other basic health fixes to save lives, to restore sight in people who are blind just because they have cataracts, to do other operations, surgery that can really restore a life to somebody who's got a uh, an obstetric fistula, which is a terrible situation that can ruin their life. And we can do this for for uh, these sorts of costs that we can easily afford. So if we know this and we're not doing anything to support these excellent organizations that are effectively helping people and saving lives elsewhere in the world, how are we different from the person who doesn't jump into the pond because they don't want to ruin their clothes? Mm-hmm. I and mean, is, is the fact that these people are further from us uh, a morally crucial difference. I don't see how, how that that distance can really be morally decisive, um, especially if you know that there are these effective independently checked organizations that are really going to use your donation in, in a way that will save lives.
0: I love this analogy so much, and I have to say, one time I got invited to a TED Talks and it was about 10 years ago, and I kind of wandered in. I'd never been in one before, and they gave me a ticket. They were like, oh, check it out. And I, I came in, and I sat down, and uh, Dr. Singer, you were the first TED Talk I ever heard. And it, <laughs> and it really was like a punch in the heart. Um, and you used a similar analogy of of the child on the street in China. People can can look that up if, if they want to, but it's a, it's a similar kind of analogy about um, the moral imperative to alleviate human suffering but you've delivered this analogy so many times but why why is it i mean the 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 question really is why don't people see the correlation between the drowning child and the millions of children that go to bed hungry every single night and are at risk of dying from various diseases that live below the poverty line over 700 million 800 million something like that people live well below the poverty line why are why are we wired to not see that is it because it requires work to think it through is it because hey if they die no one can really put it upon us i mean you must have been asked this question um half a million times
1: <laughs> i have been asked it quite often and i've i've looked into the psychology that relates to this and you know, use use the words uh, us being wired, not to respond in some way. And I think that's accurate because I think we evolved in very small face-to-face societies where we would help people who we knew and who were part of our group. Um, you know, scientists think that we spent most of our evolutionary early history as humans in groups of maybe uh, hundred to two hundred. So you would know everybody in that group uh, and you would help them if they were in need. But your capacity to help others outside that group would be very limited. Um, and in fact, maybe the groups around your own group's territory would be hostile. So that would be a risky thing to do. So I think we've, we've evolved to help the, the face-to-face people. And, and to some extent, my little child in the pond story plays on that because you see the child in front of you. Even if you don't know that child, you see the child. Whereas I'm then asking you to consider situations of people who you can't see, they're far away, you don't know who will be helped, even if even if you use the internet as uh, the Against Malaria uh, Foundation, for example, does tell you where your donation is going, which villages they're distributing nets in, but you still don't actually know which child you're going to save because, of course... Mm-hmm. The children who, who are under bed nets aren't going to die. And maybe one, some of them would have died, but you don't know which. So um, I think we're not psychologically attuned to respond to people who are not in front of us and particularly people who we can't identify as individuals. So I think it's a psychological problem. It's not really a, a problem of reasoning. Most people, when they think about this, um, they, they don't say, oh, well, uh, just because somebody's far away, is not a reason to care, uh, that's a reason not to care about them, um, but it's rather the emotional pull isn't there, and so many people respond to these emotional pulls, they don't respond to their thinking and reflection about, you know, is this something really important that I could save a child's life, um, the cost to me is quite small, does that mean I ought to do it? I think when people do think about it that way, they tend to agree, yes, I should do it.
2: I think you're absolutely
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're
2: right. And and you've talked a lot about the psychology of giving and, and even the evolution of it, the evolutionary sort of backdrop of it and this idea that we're sort of more geared towards helping people who are... Uh, closer to us, who look like us, um, who we feel some kind of communion with, as opposed to people who aren't, et cetera, et cetera. It's why, you know, when there's a disaster in the United States, we are, as Americans, far more likely to pour money into aid than if there were a disaster, say, in Haiti, which we feel like, well, that's it's different than us, it's not us, whatever the case may be. But I wonder if there's something else, too, which is related but somewhat distinct, which is the sense of responsibility, where I feel as though I'm in a situation in which I am responsible for this drowning child because I am there. And it's almost like there's a burden, a weight that's placed upon me. But I do think that there is something to be said about here where people do, whether they can express it or not, feel like, well, I'm not responsible for that person. On the other side of the planet, and that really gets to the heart of the morality of what you're trying to say here is is trying to uh, convince people that they do indeed have a responsibility to that child on the other side of the planet.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's really important, uh, and the, the way I presented the example, I was trying to make explicit that you're not responsible for the child in the pond, you know, that you're not the child's parents. The, you know, it's not as if the child's babysitter said, oh, look, could you take care of this child for a moment? I've got to go to the bathroom. Uh, you know, it's just a complete stranger. And, and you clearly have no responsibility for the child being in the pond. But, but you're right that there is a sense of I'm responsible for people in my neighborhood or the people I see in front of me. I'm not sure what we can do to get people to feel that responsibility. I, 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 I wrote a book a few years back called One World in which I tried to emphasize that we are one world now, that we are interconnected in, in many ways and that there are many problems that we can't possibly solve on our own. Climate change is the classic example. Uh, you know The greenhouse gases that we produce in the US or where I am now in Australia, are going to affect everyone in the world. And similarly, the greenhouse gases that they're going to produce are going to affect everybody. So I think we need to encourage a sense of global responsibility. And particularly when we're talking about extreme poverty and if we're living in one of those affluent countries like the United States, to feel that we only have responsibilities to people in the United States really has a a very bad effect that your charity is directed to people who are already relatively well off even if you're helping some of the poorest people in the u.s mm. um they are still well above the world bank's extreme poverty line which is as rain mentioned there, are seven to eight hundred million people who are below that line and virtually none of them are in the u.s by the way i just want to say
0: that uh reza has so many children that if I was walking through a park and it was one of his kids, I would just keep on walking because oh, he's got so many, he wouldn't even notice. Yeah, that's true there. He wouldn't there. Know like, oh, where's where's little
2: Shipley Aslan? I, I, we haven't seen him in a week. Rain, at this point, how many episodes do you think we have done that have had something to do with the climate crisis?
0: Climate crisis has been mentioned in at least a quarter or third of our episodes. And that's why this new startup, Ren is kind of intriguing. Yes, Ren is a startup that's making it easy for everyone to make a meaningful difference in the climate crisis. Right now, they're focused on monthly subscriptions where you can calculate your carbon footprint, then offset it, by supporting awesome climate projects that plant trees, protect rainforests, and remove CO2 from the sky. So the goal is to unlock the collective action of millions of individuals to drive the systemic
2: change needed to end the climate crisis. So this is how it works. You go to the Wren website and there you can calculate your own personal carbon footprint based on your lifestyle. And then you can offset it by funding projects that plant trees, protect rainforests, sequester CO2, all that stuff. And it's really easy. You, It's very easy to sign up for Wren. It's just basically a way to do something meaningful about the climate crisis. And I know that a lot of us are feeling very, you know, hopeless about it. And you think like, well, what could one individual do except to recycle? Well, this is something that you can do. Ren practices hyper transparency. Once you sign
0: up to make a monthly contribution to offset your carbon footprint, you'll receive monthly updates about the tree planting, rainforest protection, and carbon removal projects that you are funding. You can even see the exact coordinates of the trees you planted. It's going to take all of us to end the climate crisis. Do your part today by signing up for Ren. Go to ren w r e n dot c o slash milkshake, sign up, and they'll plant 10 extra trees in your name. That's W-R-E-N dot C-O slash milkshake. Start making a difference. Thank you, Wren. Milkshakers, I hear people say that VPNs have a reputation for slowing down your internet speed, but you know what? NordVPN doesn't because it's the fastest VPN in the world. I use it. I do not have to sacrifice internet speed for better security. With NordVPN, my internet traffic is routed through a secure encrypted tunnel, which protects my data and privacy. Public Wi-Fi is notorious for being a hotbed for hackers. So by using NordVPN on my phone, laptop, and iPad, this protects me from hackers, gives me peace of mind while traveling.
2: Plus, I can log into my Netflix account. Yeah, you can uh, actually access content from over what, 59 different countries. All you got to do is change your virtual location with one click on NordVPN. So, for instance, I live in the US, but if I've got NordVPN, I could be anywhere in the world virtually. I can access content from those regions. That means I can watch one of my absolute favorite shows, Peaky Blinders. Oh, that's silly and Murphy.
0: So grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash milkshake or use the code milkshake to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus one additional month for free plus a bonus gift. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. You'll also get the bonus gift of NordVPN's brand new anti-malware software threat protection. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee if NordVPN is not for you. So there is no risk
2: whatsoever. So this goes to the the heart of uh, your work and and uh, so much of your, your philosophy. We've used this phrase a few times now, effective altruism. Can you just, for our listeners, give us sort of the most basic definition of what we mean when we say effective altruism? We've talked around it a little bit, yeah. but...
1: Sure. Well, altruism—I think most people understand—it's—it's it's wanting to do good to others, um, and part of the problem with altruism. There are plenty of people who are altruistic in various ways. Um, you know, a lot of Americans give to to charity, so that's great. But very few of them really think hard about: Am I giving to a charity that will give me the best value for the money I'm donating? Um, you know, compare, compare the attitudes to, let's say, buying a new phone or a new car or a new laptop, uh, and people will check around, and they'll look at ratings and what people say, and they'll say, can I get, you know, what, what's the best I can get for what I can afford? Uh, and and that, that makes sense. And if, if they went out and got something, and then somebody said, ah, you could have got a better one for less money than you paid, you feel a fool. But when people give to charity, they hardly ever do that. They hardly ever say, is this the best charity that I could give them to, you, the one that will do the most good, that will reduce suffering the most, say, with the amount of money that I can give to charity. Uh, but effective altruism says that's what you should be doing. You should make sure that what you're doing, and it doesn't have to be money, by the way. It could be volunteering your time. It could be a range of things. Uh, just try to make sure that whatever resources you have that you're going to use altruistically, you do the most good that you can with them. And unfortunately, you no longer have to spend hours and hours doing all that research yourself because, as I mentioned, um, mm-hmm. The Life You Can Save curates a list of effective charities. If you go there to uh, thelifeyoucansave.org, you can quickly find uh, a, num- a selection of charities. You can look at what they're doing. They're all independently verified as, as effective, and you can donate to one of them. This goes to a quick follow-up question. I have some experience because I've
0: worked in the nonprofit sector and in philanthropy in Haiti, and I've seen some egregious... I used egregious twice in two different contexts. I'm not sure I used it. Well, he just learned the
2: word to the other day.
1: You need to finish the sentence, then, then we can tell you. <laughs> uh, I saw
0: egregious examples of wasteful nonprofits in Haiti, and there's been much written about it from both from the United Nations and, and Red Cross, but it's two very large players on the world stage that simply got funding for certain projects that last a certain amount of time. And as soon as that funding dries up, they're gone. They're just gone. So whatever they've set into motion, all of a sudden, they're just not there. We saw a school that was run by a large, 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 large nonprofit, and these kids kept showing up every day and there were no teachers. And we were like, what the hell is going on? It's like, oh, they, even though this has a billion dollar endowment, this nonprofit, they lost their specific funding from whatever foundation for the school. And they just pulled up and left. They didn't tell the community anything. They just, they just left. And the poor kids were showing up to this empty shell of a school every day. It uh, never ceases to piss me off. And that happened 10 years ago. But my question to you is what is ineffective altruism?
1: Well, you just gave an, an egregious example of it. I think, uh, yes, Ooh, um, nice. That's that's a uh, that's really poor. I mean, you really need organisations that will follow follow up and make sure that whatever they've put into it is still working and still doing what it should be doing. So um, that's that's definitely uh, one kind of example. Um, but there are other things which which sound like good ideas, but when you follow them through, they 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 don't really work. Um, a few years ago, there was uh, a little craze about um, pumps that would pump water up for people by children playing on a kind of one of those uh, spinning devices that you sometimes see at playgrounds that kids push around and they, they spin mm-hmm. around. Uh, and this sounded like a great idea. Hey, the kids get to play on something, plus the water comes up and the adults don't have to operate the hand pump. Um, sounds terrific. A couple of Hollywood stars got involved in backing it. But uh, when it was really followed through some of these pumps that had been play pumps, as they were called, had been installed, it turned out that the kids got bored with them fairly fast um, and went spinning around pumping up the water. So the adults had to push this round thing round and around, which is actually harder work than just operating a simple hand <laughs> pump. Um, and so it was basically you know, a, a waste of effort. So... Um, Innovations, good ideas, need to be tested. They need to be checked out in practice. Um, and that's what uh, organizations that are auditing these, uh, like Give well uh, like The Life You Can Save, uh, there's a few others, um, are really doing. They're, they're going back there and they're checking that things are really working as expected and that the interventions have the impact, um, that there's a scientific backing for saying, yes, mm-hmm. This is something that people need. This is what they want. This is what the local people uh, are requesting. um, And it does actually work in the long run.
2: Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. You heard me. Salt. In fact, when I got my packet of uh, Elements... I was like, oh, it's one of these like hydration mixes. Uh, You know, some extra electrolyte. Wait a minute. What is this? It's, it's salt. Like it, what am I, I'm not gonna, am I gonna drink salt water? Pop it in. It's salty. Yeah, it's a little bit salty, but it's like delicious salty. It comes in all kinds of crazy flavors and it contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio. That's a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, but with none of the junk. So,
0: you know, I play a lot of tennis. I joined this little tennis club ever since we moved out here. I love it. And um, I'm sweating like an ox out there. I put in a couple Element, uh capsules in my water bottle. Y- yeah, it's a little vague hint of salt. So it's a little bit getting used to because so many of these, you know, powders are so sweet, you know, artificially sweet. Um, but I felt refreshed and nourished. I had plenty of energy. I didn't feel dehydrated at the end of the night and I kicked butt at tennis. Element is so sure you will love their product and come back for more that they're offering you a free Element sample pack. That's eight single serving packets free. Just cover the cost of shipping, $5 for US customers. Get yours at drinklmnt.com slash milkshake. This deal is not available on their regular website. You must go to drinklmnt, that's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash
2: milkshake. Element offers a no questions asked refund. Try it totally risk free. If you don't like it, share it with a salty friend and we'll give you your money back. No questions asked. So you got nothing to lose. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks.
3: Oh, yeah, that's me.
2: There is also, I, I guess, a, a utilitarian aspect to your idea of effective altruism. And you are, you, I think you've described yourself quite proudly as a utilitarian.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah.
2: The idea of this is that, you know, well, you should do the most good that you can do. And oftentimes, this is just a fact, the, the most good that you can do involves giving the most money that you can give. And again, you've you've spoken at length about this. Um, but I have to say that that philosophy has really started to fall out of favor (laughs) in the last, uh, couple of years. Um, it's hard to look at people like, for instance, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, or just, you know, fill in the blank with your douchebag billionaire okay uh who get lauded you know Jeff Bezos gave away a billion dollars last year and was lauded for that it's a very utilitarian thing if it's you know 1% of his income and he gave it away and he made a ton of money and he put a billion dollars out into the world and let's assume that he put it out there effectively we're not sure about that but let's assume that he did but a lot of people would say yeah but you spent the last year destroying the planet destroying lives in order to make the hundred billion dollars that allowed you to give a billion dollars away so far from being lauded you should be condemned for that and that that view tends to kind of be at odds a little bit with um you know what you're what you often talk about, about the sort of the utilitarian framework for uh, effective altruism. I'll, I'll give you just a, a, a little personal example of this. My wife is a, you know, she's a, a, a nonprofit pioneer. She created Kiva um, 15 years ago. I'm sure you're familiar with, with Kiva, the micro-lending sure. platform. You know, she did that um, in 2004, 2005 at, while she was getting her MBA at Stanford and almost every one of her coworkers. Went on to work at Facebook and Google uh, and Amazon, and they are all multi multi millionaires. And let's assume that they've given away, you know, a couple of million dollars. Whatever, that's a lot of money. It's great. She created, you know, the the world's first nonprofit unicorn. Uh, they they've given i think a billion and a half dollars you know in loans at this point um, and she made nothing <laughs> for for years and years and years and so has not really kind of is not somebody who gives money to to charities really you know it's just not it's just not part of her the way that she thinks of altruism um so in some sense you could look at you know the the facebook millionaires and say well if you're talking about utilitarianism, do the most good, give the most money that you can as often as you can, they're they're sort of morally superior to, you know, Jessica who founded an organization that does literally pull people out of poverty but who at the same time also um, you know, has not been in financially in a, in a situation in which she's able to give, you know, large amounts of money. So, I guess all of this is just to say how do you respond to people who who talk about the fact that more isn't always best?
1: Well, I th- think that more is best if it doesn't come with other costs. But of course, if it does come with costs, if in order to acquire the more to give it away, you have to harm a lot of people or damage the environment or damage the world, then that's a negative. And when you do the sums in the end, it may come out that it was not more. It may come out that Jeff Bezos has not done more than uh, Jessica, your wife. Uh, that's what you need to look at. Now, you know it's a pretty complicated story to try to assess of of any specific billionaire whether what they've done is good good on the whole or bad on the whole and and how you do that. Well,
2: can we can we just talk about Bezos then? Because that, that seems like a part. So let's talk about Jeff Bezos. You, you know how he he made his hundreds of billions of dollars. And you know that he has given away billions of dollars. What would your um, your judgment be about, say, a Jeff Bezos?
1: Well, I still think it's complicated um, because you know he has made books cheaper and more accessible. I've bought books from Amazon because I can get them quickly. Um, I couldn't get them otherwise from where I am. Um, and I think spreading information and spreading knowledge is a valuable thing. And of course, Amazon has done that not only with books but with many other items as well. So uh, it's still not—it's not, not clear cut. Um, now, certainly, his workers have not always been treated well, um, and it's interesting to see that. The-
2: and in bringing things, you know, cheaper and to a broader audience, he has taken that away from hundreds of thousands of small business owners. I mean, this is the thing about utilitarianism, right? <laughs> is that it's in, in an interconnect... The calculations
1: interconnect- are, tr- are difficult. I, yeah,
2: very, very yeah. difficult.
1: You know, okay, so but now... I agree, the calculations are very difficult. But you surely wouldn't want to ignore these facts, right? You, yeah, I mean, you you can't just... Look, I, I, I'm prepared to say that I prefer a, a tax system and a structure in which nobody became a billionaire, in which uh, the money instead was taxed and then used to help people on lower incomes or to protect the environment or to do the many other things that we need governments to do so uh, yes in that sense um, I am opposed to billionaires but uh, with any individual billionaire of course it's a more complicated story and we need to know both what they are doing what are they giving away um, so my impression of Jeff Bezos's philanthropy is it's not actually as effective um, as say what Je- uh, what Bill Gates has done in setting up the Gates Foundation, which has saved millions of lives uh, through working against diseases of various kinds. Um, uh, One of the good things that I think has happened from Jeff Bezos is that uh, his former wife, Mackenzie Scott, has got a substantial part of the money he made, and uh, she's giving it away to more effective charities. I just uh, saw some of the charities that she's giving it to, and some of them are on the uh, Life You Can Saves list let me just say that uh, Mackenzie Bezos has given away 20%
0: of her wealth, which was almost $50 billion. And Jeff Bezos has only given away 1% of his $200 billion. So doesn't it, at the end of the day, kind of come down to percentages,
1: really? Well, that's certainly a very relevant figure. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and Jeff Bezos, you know, has given away an amount that he would not notice, really, in terms of in terms of his wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas um, Mackenzie Bezos has 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 not done that. Uh, she's given away a, well a more noticeable amount, I guess. He's still got plenty, but I'm sure she's going to continue to give to give more away. So I think that's very relevant, and that is, after all, a utilitarian point to say that look, if if you've got the capacity to give away two hundred billion, or let's let's be generous to him and say hundred and ninety nine billion so that he can still have a billion to play around with and live. Play with. Yep. Um yeah. So you know, if you've got the capacity to give away hundred and ninety nine billion and you only give away one or two billion, uh, you're not doing anything like the most good you can do. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's relevant, and it's pe- people like like Gates and and Warren Buffett, for example, who has given to the Gates Foundation and has said he wants to give away most of his fortune before he dies. Um, I think they're people who are doing better on that scale. Again, you know, it's an open question as to whether they did harm to acquire that money, but in terms of having the money, yeah. um, I think they're doing they're doing much better because they're giving away a larger percentage and they're giving it in ways that appear to be highly effective.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, Bezos is easy because it's very simple, I think, for people to understand the harm that he has done in order to to do the good that he has done. And so it's like the perfect utilitarian philosophical argument in a freshman college class, you know. Um, but you you did mention this, like, I mean... Is it possible to even consider the idea that it doesn't matter whether you're Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, that the there is no means, there is no moral means of accumulating that kind of wealth. Um, so great that Warren Buffett is giving it all away, but it's very difficult not to recognize the harm or even, maybe not necessarily that he himself did, but the 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 advantage that he took of a broken system, right, or, or an unethical path that he took in order to then be able to get to the place where he could do the most good possible. So I guess, you know, well, I, guess, I mean, look, there's a reason why utilitarianism has fallen out of favor in some ways, except... You know, in, in the way that you're challenge describing that it. by
1: the way, I, I don't think it has fallen out of favor. Please, I think do. It's Please challenge favor. it. but yeah. Um, so, you know, we're talking worldwide here, not just the United States. United States, because of its talk about rights all the time and the, the rights tradition, has never been a, a place where there's been a, a lot of utilitarian thinking. But if you look at it uh, you know, across the world, I, I think there is a lot more utilitarian thinking. I think, in fact, the pandemic showed that. Uh, even in the United States, because despite all the talk about individual rights, when it came down to an emergency, uh, people accepted very severe restrictions on their freedom of movement, for example, in lockdowns um, for the sake of the greater good. Uh, And I think that showed to many people that uh, really rights are not fundamental, but uh, doing good, making people better off, avoiding a lot of suffering and misery um, and premature death uh, is something that people are prepared to give up rights in order to have. But, uh, but, but that's a little bit of a, a digression. I just wanted to come back to, to Warren Buffett and his situation because uh, so Buffett has, has spoken openly uh, about the unfairness of the tax system in the United States. He's pointed out that he pays a lower rate of tax on his income than his secretary does. Um, and he's also called for uh, call, called for the restoration of, of estate taxes, so-called death duties um, because he thinks that that's a fair way to redistribute income. So it's not as if Buffett is you know just saying uh, you know yes, this is a great system that I've that has enabled me to make uh, many billions of dollars. Um, he's calling for change and that's- of course it you know it has an impact when somebody like him does that. So you know what? What was he supposed to do, given that he had this gift for picking companies that uh, you know he could invest in and make a lot of money? Uh, I think he, he tried to change the system. Um, yes, you could say in a way he's taken advantage of the fact that it hasn't changed, but he's also using the wealth he's accumulated to do good things.
2: And yes, and at least there's that. And But it does remind me a little bit about when, when President Obama said hey, I think that you guys should um, pass a law to keep me from being able to drone whoever the hell I want to drone. In the meantime, I'm going to drone whoever the hell I want to drone. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hear it. I that, that. And that's very true. That, that that I'm really happy that at the end of his very long, very successful, very profitable life, Warren Buffett has said uh, maybe the system that I used to become a billionaire was unethical and the rest of you should do something about it. But in the meantime, I'm going to give my money away. I'm not making it simplistic. It's a very complicated.
0: You, you'd you mentioned the death tax uh, before. And uh, Dr. Singer, I just wanted to say I had a, I did an interview with uh, Elon Musk several years ago where I famously uh, offered him a bite of my chicken sandwich in exchange for a Tesla. Um, which didn't quite work out, but he was talking very much about the death tax because that that's the, a perfect way to tax billionaires because essentially you're just taking away from their children that haven't done anything anyway. Exactly, it's a little bit different <laughs> yes. than someone who's who is a you know an income generating profit maker entrepreneur business builder, and if you tax them too much and stop them from you know that's what a lot of capitalists would argue. It's it's a little different. So that is, um, but here I have a. I want to change gears a little bit. I want to change direction a little bit. So I'm going to put on a little bit of a different hat. So both Reza and I come from a religious background, and you are a famous uh, atheist. And I don't want to get into you know whether there's God or not. That's a kind of boring argument. But help me to understand this. Utilitarianism, and uh, from utilitarianism, effective altruism is what one could call a kind of a secular morality. It really is an ethics of, hey, here I am, a human being on this planet. I should do what's right and good, and what's right and good is to alleviate suffering of others, and let's do that in, a, in the most effective way possible. So from a religious perspective— Um, I'm a member of the Baha'i faith. So Baha'is embrace all the different religious traditions. We were interviewing these monks a few weeks back, these Buddhist monks, and they talked about meditating every day on the suffering of others. So that as you, in meditation, find peace in yourself through the process of meditation, you're also gaining compassion for others and the suffering of others. And then you work towards alleviating the suffering of others. So they're Buddhists. In the Bible, it's just chalk a block with Jesus helping the poor. One of the five pillars of Islam is helping the poor. Now, whether Christians, Buddhists, and Muslims actually do this is a question. Whether they do it effectively is another question. We know that of um, the 80% of Americans that give to nonprofits, 40% of that giving is church-based, we're not sure if church-based giving is really the most effective way to uh, relieve the suffering of others but uh, uh, on a larger point help me help me understand from an atheist perspective from a secular humanist perspective if i'm a consciousness on this planet and i'm looking around and there's um the only purpose i find is a purpose that i create uh of of myself because I'm just in a material universe and there's a lot of molecules bouncing around and the material world and energy and mass and matter has always existed and always will for whatever reason. Why, Dr. Singer, why is there or should there be an imperative toward good? Where does that moral imperative come from if not some kind of like divine source that leads one to greater empathy, compassion, giving, and altruism, because part of me goes—I'm sorry, I'm being a little long-winded—but because part of me goes, and I'm really trying to honestly understand this, and I would love your insight, and we have a lot of atheist and agnostic uh, listeners, um, wouldn't my— without anything higher than uh, atoms and molecules, wouldn't it just simply be life, simply be about pleasuring myself and the people that I love that are close to me and living in maximum comfort? Why care about children in Bangladesh from this uh, ethical perspective that you have spent your life fighting for?
1: Well, ultimately, I think uh, it comes from our ability to understand what, it is like to be other people, uh, and for that matter, to be non-human animals as well, um, in situations where they are suffering. Uh, and if we know our own suffering, or we know the suffering of those close to us, there's then, I think, a connection that our ability to to reason makes, certainly supported by our ability to em- to empathise. And as I said earlier, I think that comes from our evolution in small-scale societies. But then our reason tells us that these are other people, they may look different from us, they may be far away from us, but they are experiencing things that I, we know about when, when we are in situations of suffering, or maybe things much worse, and those are things that are bad, that we recognize as bad, that we want to avoid ourselves, and because we are beings capable of reasoning, we can take a more impartial point of view. Um, I sometimes use the metaphor, take the point of view of the universe. But of course, I know the universe doesn't really have a point of view. as you said, it's uh, it's it's material things, atoms bouncing around. but but it, just as a metaphor, we can rise above our own personal situation. We can look at things from a, a broader perspective, and we can say, oh, you know, I think it's bad that I suffer. I think it's bad that my children or others I love suffer. Um, and really, these are other people, these are other beings capable of suffering. They have their own children, they have their own griefs. Um, those are just as bad um, from that broader point of view. And if I don't think about that, if I just ignore that, um, there's something there's something wrong with my actions. I mean I would not want them to ignore my suffering if they were in a similar situation and able to help. and so I shouldn't really be ignoring their suffering either. So it's a golden golden rule, essentially. I think something like the golden rule, yeah. Um, and you know that's a tradition that exists uh, in various places. I think that's something that comes to us through our reason. I mean, the, the thinkers in different cultures have come to something like the golden rule. So um, yeah, I think that's that's a part of our capacity to reason in this kind of impartial way that gives rise to the insight into the golden rule.
2: Well, here we come to the the question of this show, what do we owe each other? What do we owe one another? Um I mean we you know, we've talked about this in in various ways about how to to give um the why of it I think is really interesting and important, but fundamentally, you know, when we're talking about the responsibility that we have to our fellow humans and how we determine, you know, Uh, what the worth of a human life is, how we create the moral balance between um, what we spend on ourselves and what we spend on others and, and where we draw the line, where we, where we finally decide what is enough, (laughs) you know, what, how much is enough? Should I, should I give you know, everything that I have, because that's the moral thing to do if I'm trying to do the most that I possibly can. Or even what does it mean to just be a good person, to live a good life? And how do we help one another get there? All of these sort of questions are wrapped up, you know, in this question of what do we owe each other? Um and of course, this is a, a philosophical question that you've spent most of your adult life pondering. How would, you, how would you answer that question? What, what do we owe each other?
1: I think there's both a, a kind of theoretical answer to that and a practical answer, and I'd like to distinguish them. The theoretical answer is, I think we owe them everything that will do them more good than it will do us harm. So that's um, a, a very extreme demand, although, incidentally, uh, Rain, as you talked about Jesus— it's not more extreme than Jesus, you know. She told the rich man to sell everything he has and give to the poor, mm. and I don't see very many Christians actually doing that. <laughs> no, but I'm kidding. Um, no. Uh, you know that's. I, but I agree in a way with, uh, with with the well, not sell everything you have because you need to keep enough so that you yourself won't become dependent on charity for others. But um, beyond that, you know, that would be the ideal. That would be the theoretical limit. But you know, in practice, I also recognise that. Human nature, generally speaking, isn't up to that. I mean, there are some saints. Um, there's a wonderful book by Larissa McFarquhar called Strangers Drowning, which yeah, um, yeah. And I think that title actually relates to the the child in the pond example that I gave, but she talks about people who are incredibly saintly in in helping people and go a very long way.
2: Well, even, I would say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but problematically saintly, where they, they give to the point, so it's the opposite of what you had just said, they give to the point where it does damage themselves
1: some of the some of them do yes that's true um but uh you know i I recognize that there are very few people like that and for most of us that's too demanding an ethic we can't really do it and and i when i say most of us i am actually including myself i mean i have not given away to that point where if i gave away any more i would harm myself more than i'm benefiting others um i do you know live a more comfortable life than that would suggest and i um more care for my children and grandchildren than that would suggest too. But um, I think in practice, if we come to the practical answer, we will do best, we will get people to act on this kind of standard, not if we tell them that, that they have to give away uh, to the li- to the limit of of how much good they can do, but to a point where they can help people significantly, help others significantly at what is just clearly a much lower cost to themselves. Um, and I think that's not too difficult a standard. Um, and for some people, it will depend on what income you are. For some people, it may mean uh, the traditional tithe, the 10% of your income. For some people who are at a lower level, they can't afford that either. And In, in the book, The Life You Can Save, I do have at the end a kind of a scale of giving which starts at quite small, 1% or 2% for people on low incomes, and goes up to uh, giving away a third of your income for people who are very wealthy, um, with all kinds of gradations in between. So I think that's that's a kind of estimate of what's a more practical level, that you can say to people, this won't really do you any harm. In fact, given that you will get some satisfaction and, and meaning in your life by knowing that you are doing something to help people much less well-off than you are, um, it may actually, on balance, do you more good than it does harm. But um, in any case, it will do others a lot of good. And if we were all to give at that level, we really would have a world in which we didn't have that seven or 800 million people living mm-hmm. in extreme poverty. We would easily raise enough to lift them above that line um, and to do a lot of other good things as well. So in a way, it, it shouldn't be too difficult for us to, to deal with, with extreme poverty in the world and to help people at the lowest level uh, without making great sacrifices. And that's really what uh, I'm arguing for in The Life You Can Save and what the, the charity The Life You Can Save, which arose from that book, is trying to achieve. Um,
0: beautifully said, and I uh, highly recommend this book, folks. And it makes it feel possible. And you have been doing this work for decades, and I thank you for your work and the perspectives of tens of hundreds of thousands of people that you've shifted. And it really feels like we can save lives. And if we uh, stop making some a couple of minor thinking errors. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for that work. But I do have a favor to ask of you, Dr. Singer. Please, go ahead. Can you please make a uh Thunder and lightning sound effect.
1: A thunder and lightning sound effect. <laughs> Out of Good your luck. mouth. <laughs> Pretend you're seven. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether I can do. That. Lightning, I don't think makes a sound, does it? It's okay, the thunder, thunder that you want. Thunder, watch. thunder, yeah, thunder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very,
1: very good. I don't know. Very good. Very musical. I, I've, I've never, I've never, you know, you've had the benefit of being on stage and you have to make strange noises, I guess. I've never really done that, apart from uh, you know things like TED talks.
0: Your sound effect was the worst. It oh. sounded like a kangaroo <laughs> farting, and. I'm really sorry that I asked you, but you bravely set forth. And for that, I thank you. And now we're into the lightning round, Dr. Singer. We're going to ask you a handful of questions, profound questions, some silly questions. And we just want your first response, the first thing that comes into your mind, that comes into your heart. Can we replay uh, Dr. Singer's sound effect right here? Thank you. When do you feel most connected with the universe?
1: When I wake up.
2: If you could live during any historical moment, which one would it be?
1: I would live now. I think this is a really exciting and important time to be living in.
0: What is something that very, very few people know about you that you can share with us right now?
1: They probably don't know that my grandfather was part of Sigmund Freud's Wednesday Circle and that he actually co-authored a paper with Sigmund Freud. Wow,
2: Wow. I did not know that. Cool.
0: (laughs) My grandfather was a farmer.
2: My grandfather was an actor. Uh, He, like rain, made sounds with his mouth. What is something that a lot of people like but you hate?
1: I'm a bit stuck on this one. Um, you know, maybe maybe, maybe burgers, right?
2: Well, what about impossible
1: burgers? Oh, the, the substance, okay. But I hate the fact that these burgers are served in these soft white rolls. I don't know why they don't serve burgers in something <laughs> a little more decent and chewy than those things. If you could have lunch with any author, past,
0: present, who would it be and why? And what would you talk about?
1: Oh, um... I have uh, recently edited a new edition of a book called The Golden Ass, which was written by Apuleius in the second century, so about 180 uh, of the present era, um, and he was a, seems to have been a fascinating person. We don't know a lot about him, but he wrote this very funny book, uh, and rather sexy, bawdy book as well, I should say, um, which is also about uh, an ass, a donkey. Uh, really a person who was transformed into a donkey. And it gives you a wonderful empathy with the donkey and with all the horrible things that are done to the, em- to the donkey in the second century of the Roman Empire. Um, <laughs> so I would really love to have lunch with him, learn more about his life, which is just not known, and um, what it is that made him write this book so, so far in advance of his time, that he's really empathetic to animals uh, in an era when generally people were not very empathetic to animals.
0: I have a donkey, I own a donkey, and his name is Chili Beans, her name is Chili Beans, and donkeys are wonderful. If anyone's looking for a pet and they're thinking outside the box, donkeys are smart, loyal, and so huggable, um, I, I can't tell you how much I love Chili Beans the donkey. And this has increased my empathy to the point with which you were talking about hamburgers earlier, I would never eat a donkey burger.
1: Good. Well you should you should read uh, my edition of the golden ass. I think you'll you'll enjoy it. Published I'm, by Norton. I'm, it's on my to-do list. Thank you.
2: Fun fact The Golden Ass is my nickname for rain.
0: I didn't even, I didn't even <laughs> know
2: that. <laughs> Peter Singer, what is the one book that you would say changed your life? Not including the golden ass. Oh.
1: Um I would say Ruth Harrison's Animal Machines, which is a book that probably none of your listeners, viewers have have read, um, because it's uh, you I know, had a small publisher. When I first started thinking about the treatment of animals back in 1970, it was the only book written about factory farming, which was already developing. Um, and it had a very powerful impact on me. I think it made me stop eating factory-farmed animals and, of course, eventually move towards being uh, not eating animals at all. Um, and you know, that was really important to me because once – you make an ethical decision that affects what you eat, that affects you every day of your mm-hmm. life, um, then, you know, you really get a sense of the power of ethics to change lives. Um, and, you know, that led me to write Animal Liberation, which I know has changed many more lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ruth Harrison's Animal Machines had a, a huge life-changing effect on me. Dr. Peter Singer, truly thank you for taking time out of your impossibly
0: busy schedule to meet with us. Uh, your book is transformative. The work that you've done, I truly thank you from the bottom of my heart. You have in your life reduced the suffering of millions of people through your books, through your speaking, through your work. Thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on metaphysical
1: milkshake. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you.
2: The life you can save, uh, I read this ten years ago and it's out in a brand new edition now. And of course the organization is the life you can save. Is it .org?
1: Yes, it's org.
2: Yeah.org. And uh and there it's really it's fantastic. Like if you have a question about well, who should I give money to? Uh this this website is excellent, tells you exactly the, the most effective charities in the world doing the, the best work for the most uh good. Yeah. Well, it's not every day you get to interview, you know, someone of the stature of a Peter Singer. Like, I mean, I I have a clear memory. I'm not a young man. I have a clear memory of being a freshman in ethics 101 and reading animal liberation and being like, I've never even considered any of this. That That was kind of a, that was a big deal.
0: You know, it was a big deal, and uh, something we forgot to mention in the intro was, uh, in looking at his research, he received. There's a billionaire, an- yet another billionaire. It's fucking billionaires, Jesus yeah. already. Berggruen, Berggruen is a German, yeah, I German, know that guy. Bergerin. And he won, he won the pri- the Berggruen Prize for Philosophy and Culture, and a one million dollar award for that. And guess what? He gave away the million dollars.
2: All away. He gave it all away. Folks. I think it would have been he awesome if he was like, thank you, I'm buying a rolls. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to buy crypto. <laughs> gonna, I'm going to use it to get as much crypto as I possibly can. I feel like we could have had this conversation much, much longer, but it would have probably bored the hell out of the audience. But I, I do think I'm I'm not satisfied with the utilitarian, the sort of rank dry utilitarian aspect of some of his philosophy. You know, again, like I, the Bezos thing is perfect. Like I, it's very easy to shit on Bezos, but he can't do it. Right. He He's, also really
0: enjoys it when you do. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's another story. That's anyways.
2: Because fundamentally, if you are a pure utilitarian And if you, you know, subscribe wholly to effective altruism, the way that he has, uh, you know, developed it, then Bezos is a hero. Then it doesn't really matter how he made his billions. It makes no difference. Make as much money as possible so that you could give as much money as possible away. And... I don't know if that works as well anymore. You know what I mean? There's something, Bezos can't erase the bad that he has done in this world, no matter how much money he gives away. I don't think he can erase it. Well, but for so
0: many people, Reza, and we were talking about this earlier, um, just on the phone, like for a lot of people, they would say, fuck you, man. Yeah. oh, I'm sorry, is creating 14 million jobs uh, really such a bad thing? Look at all the people paying their mortgages because Amazon exists. Thank you very much. Why don't you tell it to all of them? Well, certainly not, not the
2: people in the warehouses, that's for sure. But yes,
0: I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> so, you know, there's something to be said for that. And also, it's isn't it just simply... Alt- utilitarianism just comes down to a cost-benefit analysis. Like, if you did... X amount uh categorical um damage to the planet and to the into humanity and to the working place uh and to the workers. And then you contrast that with X number of billions given and it supersedes the damage you did, then it is a net positive. So um, but I agree with you. I think it's I think it's flawed because I think, you know, listen, you know me. At heart, I'm a really I'm a softy. I'm kind of a hippie, pansy, Bahai, and I think it all comes down to. Um, and we did talk about compassion, but I just think about the amount of compassion we have when someone we love is sick is so can be so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Even a pet that we have is sick. I know people, and I've experienced it myself. They have a sick dog or a dead dog, and they're 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 weeping to such an extent. Um, that it's almost unfathomable grief. And yet we read in the newspaper about a train tipping over in Pakistan and 600 people died. Think about their families. Like, you know, And I know this sounds really like um, simply uh, philosophical, but I truly believe that where we need humanity to go is to um, hyper-increase that sensitivity to compassion, that compassion is like a muscle and it can be worked out and we need to exercise it and stretch it and breathe into it and practice it and bring it into our daily meditation, our daily thought. When we see a homeless person, we see a home, a poor person, when we read about events in the news, um, we have been able to do this with the war in the Ukraine. We have been able to do this culturally with the war in the Ukraine. This is a war. It's in a Western country, Mm -hmm. which is important only in as much as people watching the war on the TVs go, wow, they're living in an apartment building just like mine and walking to a grocery store just like mine. And now bombs have have hit that skin
2: color as I do. Yeah.
0: And they say same skin color. Now bombs have hit that grocery store and that apartment building and that parking garage and killed all these people with white skin. And I so relate to that and I feel for, and also the people of the Ukraine have shown themselves to be tenacious fighters and quite courageous at the same time. So we have increased our compassion. Let us then increase that same compassion to the war in Yemen where they don't live in apartment buildings or have grocery stores like ours and they don't have the same skin color and to increase our compassion to a deeper and deeper level. And if, if seven and a half billion people are actively practicing compassion to this level, we will of necessity heal the income inequality and the poverty that exists on planet Earth. And it sounds, I almost hate myself for saying that because it's so simplistic and it's so hippy-dippy, airy-fairy. Please set me right, Reza.
2: Well, I I won't set you right, but I will throw a wrench in in the whole thing. And this, again, comes to you know, I'm not about to have a philosophical argument with a philosopher, but now that he's no longer on the line, um, Yeah, let's
0: skewer him. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh now that he can't respond. Um the problem again with utilitarianism is that it it's a it's so theoretical. It it seems to make sense, but it because it's so theoretical. So here's here's a an uncomfortable fact that I am willing to admit. And that I would bet that a lot of people would be willing to admit, or maybe not exactly, you know, willing, but would admit. Let's use the drowned kid analogy, okay? If I walk into a a park and I see a a kid drowning, yeah, of course, I'm going to jump in there. Who cares about my suit? I'm going to jump in there and I'm going to save that kid. If I walk into a park and I see two kids drowning, One of them is my kid and one of them is someone else's kid. Mm. Uh, It's not even an issue. I'm going to save my Mm -hmm. kid. If I walk into a park and I see two ponds, one in which my kid is drowning and the other in which a hundred kids are drowning, guess who I'm saving? Hmm. I would like to say, as a utilitarian, that obviously 100 lives supersedes one life the the very core of utilitarianism the most good for the most people but Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. would I would suffer the deaths of I don't know how many people that I didn't know in order to save the life of one of my children and fuck utilitarianism I'm I'm not exactly happy like morally satisfied with that part of myself but I have come to terms with it. And so in a very real way I'll give you you know that's I'm giving you a theoretical example let me give you a real example. So I live in a very I live in Los Angeles <laughs> terrible school district in California the 49th worst public school system in all of the 50 United States. Oh nice. And I could have my kids go to a shitty public school, there's one not far from me, and get a shitty education and suffer the consequences of that and then use my money to pay for a girl in Haiti to go to school. You could you could educate a hundred girls in Haiti instead, I send my my three school-aged kids to an expensive school. Um, mm-hmm. and the money that I use for that school, I I could pro- <laughs> I could probably educate every Haitian girl <laughs> in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Uh yep. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm saying. Put the two choices in front of me. Put the two choices in front of me. And I think of myself as a moral person. I give a lot of money and time and resources away. I try my hardest to make the world better, but put those two choices in front of me and I'm always going to choose my children. So I don't know what to, I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what to say about that. I don't know if that's a, that says something about me or about utilitarianism or I don't know, but it's just, that's a fact that I can't get, get around.
0: Uh, I don't know what to say about that. I think I'm in the same boat. I don't know that it's such a bad thing. Um, there's more to be uncovered, but I do think that it all boils down to Pee-wee Herman at the end of Pee-wee's big adventure. There's a pet store fire. You remember the pet store fire scene? Yes. And he goes in and he saves all the pets. Pee-wee hates snakes at risk of life and limb. Pee-wee Herman goes into the Mofo in pet store, saves the snakes risking
2: life and limb and that's what it's all about folks there you go once again my co-host Rain Wilson has taken an enormously complex problem and whittled it down to peewee levels thank you everyone one
0: of the great films of all time and ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening to Metaphysical Milkshake we would love to hear from you follow us on the social medias and uh also, leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts, will you? Along with your life's big question. And
2: we would love to bring you on the show and talk to you sometime. What do you say? As a reminder, if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, all you got to do is take a screenshot of it. Send us an email at metaphysical@castmedia.com, at metaphysical@castmedia.com with that little screen grab. And you know what we're going to send you? A free copy of the life you can save. The first 20 people to do that get a free copy of The Life You Can Save.
0: Also, the audiobook is available for free for all Metaphysical Milkshake listeners. There is a link in the notes on the podcast. Download it now. Thank you.
2: But don't ever say we don't give you anything.
0: Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production
1: and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang. That could, for example, give them the capital to start uh, a small business, and there are some mm-hmm. other charities that the or, po- or a podcast, they could start their own podcast. <laughs> Even a podcast, maybe yes, if as long as they have an internet connection. We need we need um, more of
2: those for the world. So definitely, yeah,
1: right. <laughs> we have we're, we're a critical shortage of podcasts. We're podcast um, starved. Maybe it's the milkshakes that you that we need, right? That you're talking about <laughs> in your podcast that uh, people need.
3: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks.